what is up guys my name is kj today we had a very special episode uh i had also had a special guest mr luke he came on today and me and him discussed the 1689 federalist view of covenant theology stay tuned what is up guys this is why theology my name is kj and today we have a very special guest. His name is Mr. Luke. He's, um, a, I guess you could say, a senior <laughs> at Southern Theological Seminary School, man. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Luke Cox. I am in my final semester at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm a member of the Reformed Baptist Church in Louisville. Uh, Jim Savasio is my pastor. I think you had him on your podcast a few weeks back. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited to be here today. Yes, sir. I'm glad to have you, man. Now, who has been like some of your uh, greatest influences? To... Oh, wow, my greatest influences. Uh, living or dead? <laughs> <laughs> I guess both. Uh, John Calvin is very big uh, for developing my theology. Uh, Cornelius Van Til is very high up there. St. Augustine. Those are probably my top three uh, old dead guys. Uh, people who are alive today, uh, mostly preachers. I would say, uh, which I think is the way that God has designed it. Uh, besides local pastors who have poured into me, uh, I've gotten a lot out of the preaching ministries of Paul Washer and Billy Balcom. Hmm. That's amazing, man. Now you mentioned Calvin. Were you able to like read through his institutes by any chance? Or? Uh, I've gotten like 90% of the way through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know Calvin can be difficult at times. I mean, I like um like John Gill, like when I'm like commentary or something like that, kind of straight to the point. Calvin, he gives you so much. He'd be like, man, get to the point. But it's, it's still pretty good. I like him. Oh, yeah. It's My cool. all of it. They say he's very yeah. brief, but I don't know, 1,800 pages and people still saying they're very yeah. brief about things. <laughs> yeah. I know my favorite guys are like uh, Jonathan Edwards. That's my all-time favorite. And then Charles Spurgeon. So those are my guys, man. I like uh, Thomas Watson, the Puritan as well. And then, like, I just met John Gill. Those were my greatest influences. Now, what kind of, like, uh, led you to, like, the Reformed Baptist side of things? I know, like, you, you said Calvin, and, he, you know, he was Reformed Baptist. So. <laughs> no. Uh, so I became uh, a Christian when I was 16. And then when I moved away to college, uh, I started getting introduced to uh, sort of the debate between Calvinism versus Arminianism when I joined a group on campus, the Baptist Collegiate Ministries. And I had never heard of the, you know, predestination stuff. And I was I was wrestling with those things. I became convinced of Calvinism. You know, when I, when I read the Bible, I see the doctrines of grace. You know, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we should see salvation as being entirely a work of God. Um, after that, uh, for whatever reason, I had a lot of Presbyterian friends at the time. And they were really <laughs> encouraging me to start looking into covenant theology. They really wanted me to be convinced of pedo-baptism. And I thought, you know, I'm going to give this a fair shake, but I'm going to do this right. I'm not just going to, you know, read their material. I'm also going to read the Baptist material. And so through reading Reformed Baptist works on covenant theology, I thought, man, this stuff is gold. And, you know, through reading uh, guys like Pascal Denault, uh, his work on covenant theology, you know, that just led to the rest of the 1689 pretty much, uh, understanding the fourth commandment correctly and all the rest. 
That's definitely, uh, I've been reading through his book right now as well. I think it's the Distinctive of Baptist kind of theology. He has a book on that. That's the one. Yeah. But I, it's, it is kind of difficult at times because, you know, like, you know, like you said, Calvin and like Edwards and all the Puritans for me, like those are like my favorite you know, theologians. And it's kind of, you know, why they end on that side of things in a sense. But of course, you know, we don't base our theology off, you know, our favorite theologians. But like, what does the Bible say? But it's kind of difficult because you, you know these guys are like great theologians. And so it, it is difficult, but we got to stay true to the Bible, though. So I want to bring you on today, man, to talk about something that's kind of, I wouldn't say controversial, but like something that's kind of, I guess, you know, people don't have, I guess, a good grasp or understanding of. And I guess we could just say like 1689 federalism. And uh, the topic I want to talk to you about is um, how does like Reformed Baptist view uh, the covenant works? And I kind of get in your head to kind of explain that, that covenantal framework, if I'm making sense. <laughs> yeah, um, we understand. Uh, well, first of all, I guess there's a it might be worthwhile to point out that there's a distinction between the covenant of works and a covenant of works. Um, a yes. lot of times when theologians talk about the covenant of works, they are very specifically talking about the covenant made with Adam in the garden of Eden. Uh, and we'll get to that later, I'm sure. But covenants of work or, you know, a covenant of works is basically a covenant um, that has certain conditions involved where we can either obey those conditions or disobey those conditions. Um, hmm. But I guess even before we get to that, <laughs> what's a covenant? Yeah. Yeah. That's probably a good question. I'll ask you to actually, what's the covenant? Well, we can even take a step, uh, take, take a step back. What's covenant theology for somebody, you know, that has no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. So covenant theology, um, is the idea that one of the major driving forces of the Bible and the way it's structured, its narrative, is through the understanding of covenants. Uh, when we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, we find that God has established covenants with his people um, in order to build relationships with them um, and to establish the fact that he is their God and they are his people. I guess we could say, too, the issue we're talking about is, is what is called biblical theology. And like it kind of differs from systematic theology. You want to kind of give a go as to why it kind of differs in that degree? Yeah. Uh, systematic theology, I suppose, um, you know, it'll, it'll talk about different topics like uh, the attributes of God or the components of salvation, uh, things that we can discuss and kind of look at the Bible as a whole to discuss. While biblical theology is something that takes kind of the chronology of the Bible into consideration. Um, it takes us through the Bible in the order that the events happen. So when we talk about covenant theology, we begin with Adam, then we move through Noah, then we move through Abraham in that order. Um, while systematic theology, we could probably talk about the concept of a covenant, but how those covenants develop over time. That's more of a biblical theology thing. Hmm. Now, um, with dealing with biblical theology, we know we have like you know, three primary views out there today in the world. You know, what we're dealing with today is covenant theology, and then you have new covenant theology, and you have dispensationalism. But for today's sake, before we can get to the point, <laughs> what is a covenant, man? Because we're dealing with covenant theology, and this is also, you know, traditionally been a reformed view. Either you're reformed Baptist or, you know, just you know, reformed. We've always held to covenant theology, but what is a covenant? 
So I recently read uh, The Mystery of Christ, His Kingdom and His, or His Covenant and His Kingdom by Sam Renahan. And in that book, he defines a covenant as a guaranteed commitment between two or more parties. And since we're talking about the Bible here, it's a guaranteed commitment uh, that God creates. He sets the conditions of the covenant and he imposes uh, this commitment upon certain people. Uh, we know that God is perfectly blessed in himself. And yet at the same time, he chooses to do good to man by establishing covenants with them. Um, so all covenants should be seen in a sense as being loving, as being gracious, as being good. But we don't call all of them a covenant of grace since there are conditions to a number of them. There are stipulations. Uh, we can rightly call some of them a covenant of works, especially if we're talking about the Old Testament. Yeah. Now, um, you hinted at it earlier, you gave a good definition, but how does, um, you also mentioned it just then again, as far as like conditions. Now, how does the covenant of works differ from like the covenant of grace? So people kind of have an understanding. Yeah. So the covenant of grace um, would be an unconditional covenant. Uh, the covenants of works typically have uh, conditions somewhere along the lines of if you obey, then you will uh, have a prosperous life. But if you disobey, you will be cursed in some sense. While covenants hmm. of grace... Our is is the new covenant. It's imposed by God, and it's Christ has already accomplished all of the conditions of the covenant. You are a passive receiver of His grace. Um, even the condition of, grace, of uh, faith in Christ, which we might see as a condition, even that in the New Testament is seen as a gift from God. Hmm. And then, of course, we know we have the covenant of redemption. That one kind of self-explanatory, I guess. But for somebody that doesn't know, how would you kind of explain that one? Yeah, the covenant of redemption um, is the covenant between the three persons of the Godhead, between the Holy Trinity. Uh, the Father has covenanted with the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father has planned or executed the plan of salvation. The Son, Jesus Christ, he becomes incarnate. He lives the perfect life. He dies on the cross. He resurrects from the dead. Uh, he does all that for the atonement, for the forgiveness of sins. And the Holy Spirit uh, is the one who uh, comes into the life of the elect, uh, gives them the new birth, and dwells in them, and points them to Christ. So it's the covenant of, of redemption is that agreement between the three persons of the Trinity to carry out the plan of salvation. Hmm. I've heard it say like this, too, that like... Um... Jesus Christ, he fulfilled the covenant of works inside the covenant of grace, all to accomplish the covenant of redemption. And so you see all three of those kind of on display That's right there. Point. Now, uh, now um, I think about this too as well. Um, so like our Presbyterian brothers, you know, before I get started, I want to say this is not any shots towards Presbyterian brothers. This is just kind of like, you know, I guess explaining what is the 1689 Federalist view of covenant theology. That's kind of the goal here. But I know our Presbyterian brothers, we have, you know, the two covenants you mentioned. We are all in agreement on what the covenant of works is, in a sense. And we're also in agreement on what the covenant of redemption is. But the problem seems to be the covenant of grace. Many of, you know, other reformers or many Presbyterian brothers or Pedro Baptists, they would say that the covenant of grace is like the covenant of, you know, it's the, it's the covenant of works, in a sense, how we view it. But they would say the covenant of grace is just a different administration. 
over and over and over in a sense. How would you kind of explain that before we get to like how the Baptist view the covenant? Yeah, my works? understanding of the Presbyterian view is uh, they see the covenant of grace uh, being present whenever someone experiences salvation by grace. So when we look at Genesis chapter three, when uh, God promises to Adam that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, you know, most Christians mm-hmm. see that as a as one of the first tellings of the gospel of the promise of the messiah that he's going to come and he's going to crush satan and he's going to cleanse people from their sin now we agree with that in so far as yeah that is a promise of jesus but what we disagree with is that in that moment that covenant was being established as a covenant of grace um and so if the presbyterians are right in saying that that is the covenant of grace being established, then they're further right in saying, okay, the Abrahamic covenant was also part of the covenant of grace. So were all the other covenants within the Old Testament. And that kind of gets to like the topic that I want to deal with today. It's kind of like looking at these covenants, you know, in the Old Testament and seeing were they truly a covenant of grace or were they covenant of works? And again, you know, the, the Reformed Baptist view, as far as how we view this, is like we would say from the time period of Genesis all the way up to Malachi and also up to the death of Christ on the cross, that was all under the covenant of works. Like up until Christ's death, you know, after after his death, that's when the covenant of grace was, you know, formulated, I guess you would say. But from Genesis to Malachi to his death, it was all covenant of works. Would you kind of agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um you know, there, there's only uh, two heads that you can truly be under. You're either under the headship of Adam and you're dead in your sins, or you're under the headship of Jesus Christ and you are alive in him. Hmm. Now, um, before we get started, too, I'm going to take us to like, you know, that Genesis, you know, Adam. You kind of mentioned it earlier. What's the difference between the covenant of works and a covenant of works? Because that's going to kind of lead this conversation as we get ready to talk about these things. Yeah, so a covenant of works would be um, any kind of covenant that has uh, conditions attached to it. And those conditions are going to be our obedience or our disobedience. The covenant of works was that one particular covenant that was established with Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam was, you know, created, he was placed in the garden, he was told to cultivate and to keep the garden, and the one commandment he was given was, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we all know the story, he disobeyed that, and he, you know, suffered death because of that, and he was kicked out of the garden, and all of his posterity, up to today, was cursed with his curses. Um, You know, we say we are totally depraved. We inherit a sinful nature from Adam. Further. I think about this. So further, um, we also know that the covenant of works was not just something God did to Adam in order just to curse him. You know, going back to our original definition, we should see covenants as being gracious covenants. It wasn't that, you know, God set this whole thing up 
um, just to curse Adam. But rather, if Adam had succeeded, if Adam had, you know, rebuked the serpent in the garden and had continued in faithfulness and continued to cultivate and to keep the garden and, you know, done all the things he was supposed to do, then he would have uh, been prompted to eat from the tree of life. He would have inherited eternal life as a result of his covenantal faithfulness. Mm -hmm. Now, for the person out there that would be like, you know, well, I don't see the word covenant mentioned anywhere in Genesis. How would you kind of deal yeah, with that? The, the word covenant is not there. Um, some people point to the prophet Hosea uh, when he says, you mm -hmm. know, those around me have broken covenant just like Adam broke covenant. Um, some people see that as you know, an explicit statement of, look, the prophet is calling this a covenant. That's possible, um, but perhaps one of, the, one of the stronger things is we see all of the elements of a covenant being present in these first three chapters of Genesis. We see all of the elements present hmm. except the word covenant. Um, so I would say that if we're consciously not trying to commit the word concept fallacy, in other words, if the word's not there, the concept's not there, as long as we're not doing that, I think we have to conclude that this is a covenant. God gives conditions and he gives appropriate uh, blessings or curses. He establishes a relationship. He does all the things that we would normally expect from a covenant. Hmm. It kind of reminds me, too, like the language that's seen like in Genesis, you know, with Adam is the same language that we see in Deuteronomy 28. Do this and live, Absolutely. do this and be cursed. So even though we know we don't see the word covenant, like you said, we still will kind of, kind of say that he definitely was in that covenant of works. Now, um, this would probably be a pretty big one, I guess, topic. So like now that you've established, you know, the difference between the covenant of works and a covenant of works was, you know, the covenant with Noah, was that a covenant of works or was that a covenant of grace? And let me read these verses real quick so people kind of have an understand what we're talking about. Genesis chapter nine, I guess I'll start in verse eight. It says this. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with all your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature. And so basically... Some of our reformed brethren, they would say that, you know, nowhere here do you see any kind of conditions, but this seems to be all be like kind of unilateral or unconditional things right here that God's promises. How, how do we kind of deal with that? Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, the story of Noah spans about four chapters from Genesis 6 to Genesis 9. And we see uh, the word covenant starting to appear in Genesis chapter 6. God's talking about establishing a covenant with Noah. And in talking about establishing this covenant, Noah is also given the commands to, hey, build this ark and bring your family on the ark and bring all the animals on, on the ark. So clearly, in a sense, there is some level of work involved. Um, we are thousands of years detached from these events. So the only thing that we, you know, we, we see that in Noah, Noah has fulfilled um, what he was commissioned to do. He built the ark. He survived the flood. 
if he had disobeyed, he would have died in the flood. Um, with the verses that you just read, we see Noah has succeeded. He's obeyed God. He's fulfilled the works part of the covenant. And God graciously promises never again to send a global flood promised by the rainbow. Um, so just as we continue to reap the fruit of Adam's disobedience, today we continue to reap the fruits of Noah's obedience. Um, so I think a lot of times it might be more natural for us to think um, that Noah's covenant was gracious because, you know, me experientially, I only received the grace of that. You know, the rainbow in the, in the sky, the promise not to flood ever again, that is good news for me. Mm -hmm. um, but we have to remember Noah is still under the covenant of works. He's still uh, under Adam's headship. Hmm. Now, uh, before we go a little bit farther, because you kind of just said that, you know, Noah was under Adam's, you know, headship. Now, how do we deal with um, this idea? Because I know some some people, I mean, you probably know this, but how do we deal with people who don't need us that, you know, we would say that, you know, all Christians, they've all been saved by the covenant of grace because, you know, gee, they're all saved by the blood of Jesus. And so even though Noah may have been under the covenant of works, he was still saved by the same Messiah that saved me and you today. Yeah, I, I think we can absolutely say that the, the saints in the Old Testament were saved um, by faith in the future promise of a Messiah. Um, I think that yes. if we confuse the promise of a future hope with the establishment of a covenant, problems come in with that. I think we ought not to confuse the two. Okay, okay. So, like, um, I'm trying to formulate this a little bit better. <laughs> How would you kind of, because we, me, and you probably know, because I guess this, the issue is, you know, we would say that, um, for example, you know, uh, we wouldn't baptize, you know, children because we don't view the covenant, you know, our covenant framework like that. But we would say, too, that we don't see anywhere in the Bible that, you know, a child can be in both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace at the same exact time. But Noah, for example, he was saved by the promise of the covenant of grace, but yet he was under the covenant, you know, works at the same time. How do you kind of, I guess, deal with that part? That would make sense. People would kind of have, yeah, the, I guess, kind of lost on that. The old covenant did not uh, have within it the uh, stipulations that if you're in the covenant, your sins are forgiven. Um, in the Bible, we see that new covenant is where we are promised the forgiveness of sins. We're promised a new heart and things of that nature. The old covenant, um, was clear with what were the elements of the covenant. So with Noah, the elements were, I'm not going to send the flood again. In Adam, the covenant, um, which he broke, brought about, uh, you know, damnation for all of his posterity. What was not part mm -hmm. of the covenant was uh, union or identity with Christ. Uh, those things were promised. They were part of the narrative, uh, but it is not uh, the covenant of grace in a salvific sense. 
definitely makes sense. Definitely makes sense. Now, um, so so far we've dealt with, you know, that, you know, coming with Adam, we talked about how that was a covenant of works, even though the word covenant is not mentioned. And then just now we talked about the covenant with Noah, and you explained how that was also a type of covenant of works. And now this is probably like the, the biggest one we could talk about today, the covenant with Abraham. Let me read these verses real quick. And let's kind of, um, I guess I can kind of give it to you, kind of see what you're kind of thinking on it. Genesis 17, verse 4 says this, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be, be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make the nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you. Throughout their, throughout their generations for everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So like in that language right there, that sounds more like a covenant of grace because nowhere in that do you see conditions. And many of our reformed brethren, they would say that, you know, here, right here, this is the perfect example of how the covenant of Abraham is a covenant of grace because this language is all gracious. But how would you kind of deal with that man explaining that this is indeed the same type of Well. I would agree with them if, if all they're saying is it's a gracious covenant. It's absolutely gracious. It's a good thing. Everything God does is good. But there's a difference between saying it's gracious and the covenant of grace. Um, there is a big difference between the two. Um, we see, for example, in Genesis 17.9, if there are conditions, um, you know, part of it says, you shall keep my covenant. And my covenant is every male among you shall be circumcised. And we see later in that same chapter that those who are uncircumcised are called covenant breakers. Uh, there are conditions to this covenant. It is covenant of works for that very reason. You can, uh, you know, you can earn the blessings of the covenant or you can apostatize from the covenant. Uh, Abraham's covenant is mm. different, however, from the covenant with Adam and Noah. The one with Adam and Noah were pretty much made with all of mankind. Uh, in Adam, all have sinned, and mm. all who have descended from Noah have benefited from his covenant, from the rainbow. Um, but with Abraham, were you going to say something? Uh I was going to say, with Abraham, say God here begins to establish the kingdom of Israel. Um, he chooses Abraham out of all the men alive. He chooses Abraham, and he selects this man to covenant with him. And in this covenant, Abraham is promised a few, a few things, and these are all gracious. He's, he's going to be blessed. God's going to make him a great nation. Through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, the land of Canaan will be his offsprings. So this is all good. But there are conditions. And at least in so far, there seems to be laws associated with it. And most clearly what's pronounced here is circumcision. Hmm. So in this, you know, and I guess in a similar sense, how, you know, many pedo-baptists would say, you know, this covenant of grace we see as a different administration throughout the Bible. But me and you are saying that, no, the covenant of grace is not formulated into Christ's death, but we do see administration of as the covenant of works throughout the Old Testament. 
and uh, Abraham it is also kind seems of symbol of that. Different promises associated with it. Um, the new covenant, again, uh, forgiveness of sins, eternal life. This one seems to be promising, uh, you know, a land and uh, many offspring and prosperity. Uh, it doesn't seem to be talking so much about forgiveness of sins. Again, in the narrative, we can see things that point to Christ, such as Abraham being justified by faith. Um, but there's a difference between those things being present in the narrative versus being an essential part of the covenant that is also present in the new covenant. And then I like what you said earlier too, that, you know, God can be gracious with the, you know, in the covenant, but that doesn't mean that this is a covenant of grace as well. That's probably right on the nail kind of what we're kind of talking about as well. Now here's, you know, the covenant of Sinai, you know, Moses with the 10 commandments. Let me read these verses uh, right here. Exodus 20 verse one, then God spoke all his words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so right there alone, many of our Pedro-Baptist brethren, they would say that this language right here is very gracious. I am the Lord, your God. And then they would say, this is, you know, this covenant of grace language right here. But if we read in verse three, you should have no other gods before me. You should not make yourself any idol. Verse seven, you should, you know, I mean, verse eight, about the Sabbath day, verse 12, on your father and mother. Verse 13, you should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. Do not lie. It's all sound like a kind of covenant of works, right? But how would you um, do that? The law of the Lord is good. You know, it, it's it's a good thing. It it is gracious. <laughs> there is a sense in which it is a burden, but it's also gracious at the same time. Um, I think that the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Moses at Sinai, is more clearly a covenant of works than perhaps the other covenants, because there are laws associated mm -hmm. with it. And they are very highly emphasized. You need to obey these things. Um, and you had quoted Deuteronomy earlier. There are blessings and cursings associated with the keeping of this covenant. And we find that throughout Israel's history, that when they had been strict in being good about obeying these things, God has blessed them. You know, there's been uh, financial prosperity. There's been peace from war. There's been no trouble in the land. But then there's times where they completely neglected the law or worshipped uh, false idols. God's gone so far as to, you know, give them up into another nation's hands. Uh, I think it's clearly a covenant of works. And so, God, could we say something on the lines of like, um, of course, we're not saying that. By no means were people in the Old Testament, you know, promised salvation from keeping because they no one can keep the law. I mean, Paul says that in Galatians, whoever desires to keep the law, like if you do not continue in all things written in the law, you're a curse. And so that was the problem that nobody could keep the law. And we were all say, like I said, by the Jesus, or for them, they were saved by the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament. But um, with this situation, like their obedience, kind of like you said, there was blessings associated and then their disobedience, there was curses. And even kind of like, you know, Sinai to like, you know, the rest of the Old Testament, you see that language. I think um, the author of Hebrews, probably Paul, he talks about that in Hebrews 8. Yeah. Uh, further, I mean, 
Hebrews as well. Blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Uh, the, the law was not, uh, if you do this, you will merit salvation. Um, it was, if you do this, you will prosper in the land of Canaan. It's right in the head, man. It's right in the head. Now, here's one that may be kind of difficult for some people because, you know, in this chapter, we don't we don't see, you know, conditions in a sense. But if you keep on reading, you will see those conditions. But we're dealing, dealing with the Davidic covenant or the covenant with David here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, it says this. Now, therefore, thus you shall say, my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from the following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great man who are on earth. And so I keep on reading. You kind of see all these, you know, unilateral things and unconditional things that God has promised in David. Verse 13 right here, it says he, well, I guess verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. So, like, where in this covenant do we see kind of like that language where, like, people must do something or it's like conditions? Because it's not like, again, unconditional well, thing God is, has promised We have to realize that in the Old Testament, each covenant builds on the previous one. So, you know, we're talking about the Davidic covenant right now, the covenant with David. <laughs> that doesn't mean covenant with Moses has gone away or that the covenant with Abraham has still gone away. In the time of David and his uh, those who came after him, they were still expected to keep the law. They were still expected to circumcise their sons. Um, so it's not like you know, Moses was works, but David is grace. No, it's one and the same covenant. It's only being expanded and clarified. Um, we see that when hmm. Uh, with the covenant of David, we see that the king is being established as being the head of the people. And so much of the blessings and the curses that are going to come upon uh, the land of Israel is going to be based upon the king's faith, faithfulness or faithlessness. Um, so the promises of this covenant are going to be a stable throne, rest in the land of Canaan, um, in the, the presence and protection of God, which we find uh, being fulfilled in the temples built by Solomon. Uh, certain kings were great, and there was times of prosperity with that. And certain kings were awful, and we saw the appropriate curses with that. So it was, it was essentially the same thing. You keep the law no, that's definitely god will bless you or you disobey the law and god will curse you obey and live disobey and die so would you say too that you know in a sense you know this same coming to works is kind of being you know republished and reestablished throughout yeah, the old testament time period that. it's uh yeah because because i i think all, all the uh the covenants that we've seen already, they are essentially one and the same. Uh, they're just different administrations, I guess might be a good way to put it. Yeah. So, um, 
we kind of talked about that's kind of like the covenant seen in the Old Testament. Like I said, we had the covenant of Adam, the covenant of Noah, the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Sinai, and the covenant with David. From that time period, it's just all covenantal works. And like you said, it's the, the same covenant, but different ministrations of that covenant. And then we get to the covenant of grace. How does that differ from like what we're seeing in the covenantal works? I'll read this passage in Hebrews 8 real quick for you. And we have no idea who wrote this book. Many people say it's Paul. We have no idea, though. But Hebrews 8, verse 7, it says, For the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Why do you think, you know, Paul or whoever the author is, this book kind of said that? I'm sorry, say that again. Mr. Luke. <laughs> Why do you think the author of uh, Hebrews 8 and verse 7 he says, For the first covenant had been faultless, right. there would have been no occasion sought for a second. The old, if the old covenant had promised forgiveness of sins, uh, if it had promised salvation through Jesus Christ, uh, if that had been an essential part of the covenant, then there would be no need for a new covenant. We'd have everything that we would need for eternal life and eternal blessedness already. Uh, there would be no need for. Oh, God to intervene any more than he already has. It's kind of like, too, um, if, you know, the covenant of grace, if we're talking about, you know, the covenant of Abraham, David, know all those things were, you know, in on Sinai was the covenant of grace, we wouldn't need the, you know, New Testament in a sense because we had the covenant of grace in the Old Testament was perfect enough in a sense. There would be no need for New Testament. But that's why I kind of, I guess, when dealing with Reformed Baptist theology, Reformed Baptist covenant theology, whatever, it makes more sense. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, the Latin word for Testament is covenant. And so you have the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we break it down. It's one of the covenant of grace and the other one's a covenant of works. And kind of how we walk through those covenants in the Old Testament, it differs from like, uh, I guess, the unconditional promises that we see in the New Testament associated with the covenant of grace. And I guess, too, it's also built upon better promises versus like you just said, how all these things in Old Testament were considered like uh, based on conditions in a sense. Well, in the New Testament, all these things are based on unconditional things where God's going to do something. And like you say, even faith, some might say that's a condition, but God gives that, you know, faith to people. He, his grace produces faith in people versus them having to right. do that and condition in order to enter the covenant. Super important to realize how God has used the Old Covenant to usher in the New Covenant. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, we just see on display how thoroughly unable we are to keep God's covenantal obligations. Even when life and death are at stake, we choose death. We've chosen it over and over and over, generation after generation. God's people uh, were disobedient and wreaked curses because of that. Um, we do see, however, that throughout uh, the Old Testament that God has promised an heir would come into the world. And as the Old Covenant is further expanded, we find that our knowledge of the Savior is expanded as well. We find that he is going to come from the line of David. He's going to fulfill all the covenants from Adam onward. And we find that Jeremiah speaks, the prophet Jeremiah, he tells us about the New Covenant. He tells us very specifically that it's not going to bring the exact same blessings that we see in the Old Testament, but it's going to bring fuller spiritual blessings. You know, Jesus brings the forgiveness of sins. 
eternal life. Mm. These are the better promises. You know, would you rather have uh, prosperity in this world or in the world to come? I think, you know, eternal life is so much better than anything we could be promised here. I think it was uh, Spurgeon who said in one of his sermons, he was, because you know, a lot of people think about, you know, you know, the gardens, you know, how things were in Eden, you know, Adam and Eve, they were, you know, without sin, they were free, but they were under that covenant of works. Spurgeon says he would much rather be in the covenant of grace, not based on him, based on Christ, because had he been in the same predicament, he also would have sinned. And the same thing is true for us today. You know, this covenant of grace is so much more better than the covenant of works because it's not based on us. When it's based on our works, we failed Christ in the law. garden. We failed immediately. But, uh, but the faithfulness of Christ keeps us secure forever. Amen. And you see that, like I said, all throughout the Old Testament, how the people of God, quote unquote, were you know failing over and over and over and over. But there was one person who did come to this world who kept the covenant of works and was supposed to get life, but he got death instead and i want to ask you about that as well a lot of people they know theology but they don't know the lord personally how would you kind of you know break down what the gospel is for somebody who may be interested in covenant theology but may not be interested in knowing jesus christ you know, covenants are important and saved. but ultimately it is a secondary issue it's stuff that you know brothers in the faith disagree on um we're baptists we have Presbyterian brothers, Lutheran brothers. Uh, we have many brothers that we just disagree on smaller things on, but we are united in our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that in Adam, we have all fallen. We've all disobeyed God's commandments. We've all gone our own way. And there's no nice way to put it. We've rebelled against God, and he's angry with us. His wrath is upon us, and we need something uh, to reconcile us to him. Uh, when we look to ourselves, when we look to our own works, we find that it brings nothing but further curses upon us. That is why God had to intervene in history. Uh, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world, born of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life. In all the ways that we were disobedient to God, Jesus Christ was completely and abundantly faithful. And he was even faithful unto the point of death. Uh, he was crucified, he was tortured, and he was put to death on a cross. And on that cross, he didn't just die as a moral example, but he died as our representative. The Bible sometimes calls him the second Adam. Just as we once uh, died through Adam because of his trespass in the garden, so too are we made alive through Jesus' righteousness on the cross. Um, Jesus died. He took upon himself the wrath of God on that cross and he was buried for three days. Jesus rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit signifying that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And his commandment is that we would look to him, that we would stop looking to ourselves for our own justification, that we would stop uh, being overly concerned about the burdens of this world, but that we would look to him. He promises to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us to the Father, to be united with him, 
to experience true holiness and sanctification and all the rest. So the, so the gospel is look to Christ. He has satisfied everything already. And if you believe in him, you will find him to be the perfect savior. Now, for the person who totally says, I don't want to look to Christ, when we speak of like when a person getting saved, what are they getting saved from? Like, what is the dangers for someone not, you know, I guess. So when Adam sinned in the garden, God said, you will surely die. And that is not just a, a physical death. We found that Adam died spiritually. And the consequence for our sin is proportional to the crime that we do. Um, we have sinned against God Almighty. He is infinitely valuable and infinitely holy. And so we are going to reap an infinite consequence for our sin. And that is an eternity in hell. That is what Jesus has saved us from. He saved us from our sin, from the wrath of God, and from everlasting torment. And in exchange for that, he gives us eternal life, communion with him forever, and eternal blessedness. It's quite all right on the money, man. I know R.C. Sproul, he says the same thing you said as well. And he says, you know, a lot of times people don't understand that they're, they're getting, they're really getting saved from God himself because a holy God has a holy punishment towards sin because he is holy. And I think R.C. Sproul says, uh, too, the reason why hell is so bad is because God is so holy. If God was just a little bit, you know, less holy, maybe the demons would hate him a little bit less. But because God is you know, complete holy and he is the word holy itself. I like to say holy is not a word, but it's a person, and that's God and the triune God. And since God is holy, there is a judgment for sin. And for all those who continue in sin, you will meet that God in the end because all of us have to die. But what's so special about the good news you just presented is that there's hope in Christ. You know, look around us today, the world's so broken, and even our lives is so broken. Many people don't even have a purpose, but in Christ, that's what the purpose is because, you know, one of the categories of question, you know, what's basically it says, you know, what's the chief in the man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But so much, you know, so much in life, we do the very opposite. We glorify ourselves and enjoy ourselves, you know, forever instead of God. But for the person out there that's completely lost, the promise in Christ is so much better. I think in Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the true rest is found in Christ. But thank you so much, Mr. Luke, man, for helping me, you know, present this 689 fertilism, which I guess people or our fellow brethren that kind of may be confused about. Yeah, it. I hope this was helpful. It was definitely a, a pleasant opportunity to have you on here, man. You got to come back on. <laughs> yes, sir. I got you. Yeah, I got you. Great. I got to have you on. Definitely. Some more. Thank you.